me ask a question as the last people are coming in. Last week in the teaching, um, we talked about this um, cultivation of the quality of loving-kindness, both the particular practice of metta or loving-kindness meditation systematically with self and benefactors and loved ones and neutral people and enemies, and more generally the, the um, quality of loving-kindness as a spiritual um, as a kind of spiritual development or a spiritual expression. How many people, um, w- first of all, work with metta or loving-kindness as part of your meditation practice, just to know? Probably half the people in the room. Um, and before we move on to the next topic, which is related, are there either questions or, or comments or experiences anyone wants to share about working with loving-kindness meditation as a regular practice? Yes. Just a very simple thing. I found that I didn't get very deep until I was kinder to myself. He said a simple thing. It didn't get very deep, or I didn't get very deep, until I was kinder to myself. So that becomes part of the ground of loving kindness practice. Thank you. Anyone else? Experiences, questions? Yes. I can use quite a bit in my work. I've been also recently through the case of loving kindness by Thich Khan. And so that, coupled with the um, talk last week, made me um, listening and thinking on the way to work and doing loving kindness for myself on the way to work enabled me to be much more loving and much more kind to my patients. Ah. So she said, I commute some distance to work, to a hospital at some distance. And based on the tapes and teachings of Thich Nhat Hanh and the, the teachings and talk last week and so forth, she's been using loving-kindness meditation while she commutes. And then she arrives in the hospital and she treats her patients differently, more, more available, more loving. That, that quality of presence grows um, and is there, is available uh, in the hospital. So thank you for that. Yeah. I've been playing with um, having an experience of, of not feeling kind, at times of not feeling kindness and feeling more and more, working with being more, more and more open and spacious with that. Ah. And when you don't feel that, what, what do you feel? All kinds of different things. Angry sarcastic, whatever, just kind of be open to the shadow of that when it comes and not fighting as a thing and trying to be kind. So his practice has been to be open and more aware of when he's not feeling loving-kindness and being more accepting of being angry or sarcastic or frightened or whatever the particular feelings might be that come. And in that sense, being kind to the shadow side as well or accepting. Yes? that I have difficulty in being um, affectionate, embracing.
So she's, she said that after last week's um, reminder about the practices of loving-kindness, she realized that she wasn't particularly expressive of that with uh, her children, particularly with her daughter or children that she still live with her. And so she made herself get up the uh, other morning and come down and consciously hug her daughter and even say it, you know, practicing hugging. Um, and uh, now she said, I've done it every morning since. And in a way, it is a cultivation, because as, as you plant particular seeds, they grow and become the way that you are, the way that we are. One more, please. Jack, I have two questions, and they might be a little bit more rich than you had in mind for this quickly interchange. Um, <laughs> One is a question of why is there evil, right? And then, <laughs> And do we have free will, or is it all determined? <laughs> yes. Go ahead. Actually, the first one's pretty simple, which is, um, can you tell me or share with us what you think is the best way of cultivating loving kindness in ourselves, or meditations you recommend? Mm -hmm. And the second is, <laughs> kind of along the line of what we said, um, why are the four Brahma Viharas Selected as such. Why not a host of other various good. So, to so the first question is what is a good way to, to cultivate loving kindness in oneself or for oneself? Uh, actually, in oneself. Um, based on what I spoke about last week, there is a systematic way of practicing loving kindness meditation, <clears throat> and it is a practice. It's really our true nature, it's there underneath in the heart and the mind. Um, in every human being, when we release the small sense of self, that body of fear, um, but it can be reminded or the seeds can be planted and it, and it manifests in a fuller way. Um, there's, a, there's a nice book in the bookstore by Sharon Salzberg called Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness, which outlines the systematic practice of doing metta, starting with oneself, or if you can't do yourself, do a benefactor, or as I talked about last week, do a pet. I mean, at the three-month retreat in, in Barry, when we were teaching loving-kindness meditation, there were some people who couldn't do, they just couldn't, there were no loving feelings. They, they began with a stuffed animal, because that was kind of what was possible for them. That's all right, you know. And by the end of the retreat, there were a lot of stuffed animals in the meditation hall, along with all the people sitting there in silence. So the principle is to start where it works for you, that place where there is that spark, and then to bring a respect to that spark and repeat it and allow it to then gradually spread to other loved ones and to community and finally to look from their eyes perhaps at oneself. How might they see me and realize, oh, in their eyes at least I'm lovable, even if I'm not in my own eyes. So... Then the four Brahma-viharas, um, which I'll go on to now, continue, um, which are called the four immeasurables or the boundless states of heart or the states of the gods or the <coughs> abodes of um, happiness, of loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Why, the, why are there those four and not others? Um, 
One of the great things about the Buddha was that he was a list maker, at least for those of us who are list makers, it makes us feel kind of... And uh, he has all kinds of lists. Um, so there are the four Brahma-viharas, but then there are, there are a lot of other states. If you want a longer list, you know, that includes um, uh, flexibility and ease and receptivity and excitement and uh, rapture and so forth, there are longer lists. But this particular one is a core, regularly repeated set of qualities that people both discover in their hearts and find to be useful to work with. So we started with loving-kindness as the first of these four talking about last week. And I actually want to skip now to the fourth of them because I want to talk about their relationship a little bit. I'd like to talk this evening about equanimity. Um, because it is related to loving-kindness, and you'll see how or why as we go on. And it also um, fits with that phrase that, uh, of Meher Baba's that I may have used last week, where he said, um, true love is not a game for the faint-hearted. And that is that there is something really demanding about spiritual life. This isn't just come and, you know, sit and make yourself peaceful and then go have a latte and you know, go do, you know, whatever else is enjoyable. If we are to fulfill and open the heart in this, on this earth as a human being, fulfill our capacity for presence and awakening and love, it's a demanding and a daunting um, and a journey of some sacrifice. Sacrifice of small things for something greater. So some stories. At one point, a monk who was well uh, on his way to awakening was, was, and highly regarded in the community around the Buddha, came to see the Buddha, said, I've practiced for a long time. I feel like I understand the teachings well. I would like to travel back to this foreign land, to this place, um, from which my ancestors have come, and offer the teachings there. Do you have any advice? And the Buddha said, well, what will happen if you go to this country and they ignore you? And the man said, oh, blessed one, if they ignore me, I will be grateful that they don't insult me. And then the the Blessed One looked back at him and said, Suppose you go to this foreign land and they do insult you, then what will you do? And he said, Oh, Blessed One, I will be grateful that they don't beat me. And he said, Well, suppose they do beat you. What will your practice be then if you go to this land and try to teach others? And he said, Even if they beat me, I will be grateful that they don't flog and torture me. And the Blessed One said, Yes. And suppose they do flog and torture you. <laughs> what will you do then, sir? And he said, Oh, blessed one, I will be grateful that they have not killed me. And the Buddha said, With that kind of gratitude, I think you will succeed <laughs> in whatever circumstance you find yourself. So that's teaching number one from the text. Not an easy teaching. Teaching number two. This is from the Zen tradition, a story that I've always found 
both interesting and disturbing. It happened in a village that a young girl got pregnant by uh, a fellow um, who did not, neither of them wanted to admit how this uh, happened, who did it. And so when her parents discovered she was pregnant and said, who is the father? And she didn't know what to say. She said, the Zen master. So when the child was born, the parents waiting and somewhat fuming about it, they marched with this young girl, underage girl, to the monastery, knocked on the door. The Zen master came out and said, yes. And they said, here, this is your baby. This is you. This, you made our daughter pregnant, and here is your child there, and handed the baby to the Zen master. And the Zen master looked at them and said, is that so? And took the baby in and cared for it. Well, a year or two later, some sense of both guilt for what she had done and also the desire to really marry this young man made the uh, young woman recant on her story and said, really, it was this fellow and I want to marry him, I love him, I want to make a family, and I miss my baby. So again, they all marched back to the Zen monastery outside of town, knocked on the gate. Now there was a little toddler with the Zen master. And they said, we've been told that it's not really your child. You know, and they said, come here and pick the child up. This is your mother, and so forth. We've been told that this is not really the child, your child, so we plan to take him back and raise him ourselves. And the Zen master looked at them and said, is that so? And then they took the, he bowed, they took the child, and that's the end of the story. Now that's a little bit excessive, I would say. Um, is that all he said? Is that so? <laughs> And put yourself in that situation, huh? Um, but there's something about the story that's made it be told for a thousand years. The, the son of the Buddha, Rahula, uh, came to see the Buddha. He was a boy who had come and then ordained and become a, a novice monk in the order around the Buddha. And one of the teachings that was offered by the Buddha to his own child one morning, he turned to Rahula and he said, Rahula, this is how you should practice. Develop a mind that is like the earth. For when you develop in your meditation a mind like the earth, there arises agreeable and disagreeable contexts which will not in any way invade or upset your state of mind. So just as people throw beautiful and clean things upon the earth, or dirty things, even excrement and urine, and the earth is not horrified, humiliated, or bothered because of these, so develop your meditation to be like the earth. Similarly, my son, Rahula, develop your meditation that is like water, when praise and blame, gain and loss, agreeable and disagreeable arise, they will not invade your mind and heart and remain and upset you. Just as people wash clean things and make them beautiful in the water, or place dirty things, excrement and urine and other such, and the water is not humiliated, horrified, or disgusted, or harmed by these things, so you, too, develop a mind 
that is pure like water. And he goes on, develop a mind and heart that is like fire, or that is like air, or that is like space, unmoved by what is placed into it. So these are some of the teachings that speak to the quality of equanimity. Equanimity is the divine state of heart that is a balance to loving kindness. And the quality of equanimity is that it is timeless, ever-present, eternal. For when we cultivate loving kindness, or when we open the heart with compassion and feel in a deep way the sorrows of the living beings of this earth, there then can come to us an imbalance, a sense that we have to go out and save them and take care of them and do this and do that, and there's some way in which our love and compassion, which is beautiful and natural, rather than freeing us to serve the world, can further entangle us in it. You know what I'm talking about? You probably have noticed that. So to see with the eyes of wisdom the heart of a Buddha is to both honor love and compassion on one side and yet develop a divine equilibrium, a grace or a peace of heart that sees that we're not in charge of this game, that we are here for a certain period of time and we can honor and love beings, but in the midst of it we realize some vaster understanding, the grace or trust. The breath breathes itself, the seasons turn, the earth and the stars move. I mean, I love to have that big perspective as a, as a reminder in life. I've talked about this, you know, to go outside on a really clear night and look up at the Milky Way and all the stars. But instead of looking up at it, to let yourself lie down on the earth and then feel that you're actually looking down into space, which, I mean, there is no up or down. It's quite arbitrary, you know. And that you're stuck on the bottom of the earth by gravity, which sort of holds us there like a big magnet, and you're looking down into the vastness of the cosmos. And it gives a better sense of really how it is. If we look, we see whether it's people, or animals, the stock market, or the elections. Pleasant and unpleasant, gain and loss, praise and blame, the change of seasons, the coming and going of buildings, of communities, of generations, of civilizations, all arise and pass according to their nature. This is the cycle of life. And we are a part of that cycle. We are interwoven into it. And beings follow their deeds or their karma as things go along. I remember the cartoon from Calvin and Hobbes where one says to the other, do you know the surest sign of intelligent life in the universe? 
that it hasn't tried to contact us. <laughs> but here is that perspective from the Buddhist texts, from the eye of wisdom where the position of kings and rulers are but of dust motes in a sunbeam, and the finest silken robes as but tattered rags, and the great Indian Ocean as drops of oil on one's feet, and the judgments of right and wrong as the serpentine dance of dragons, and the rise and fall of beliefs as but traces left by the four seasons. There's a perspective that we can bring to our life that doesn't mean we don't care. We can care really deeply, like a parent toward their child. We can love and hope for and enormously tend to and weep for, yet at some point there comes the deep realization that we don't possess them. Though we love and nourish them, we have to set them free to have their own journey and to honor their own nature. And as our children go out, out the door, as my daughter does as a teenager, going out, can I have the car keys, Dad? You know, I'm going. All we can do is offer our prayer, our blessing. But they are not ours to possess. And this is true of all things. We think we, we, you know, we're in charge or that there's some plan or that you get the rules and then you know what to do. From Somerset Maugham, there are three rules for writing the novel. Unfortunately, no one knows what they are. <laughs> no one can love for another person. No one can let go for another person. No one can get enlightened for another person. It is the task of each being to discover that freedom in themselves. And when we understand this, there comes a place of peace that is natural to us, but that is born again or grows in us. If you lose your own peaceful center and are overwhelmed by the force of others, perceptions and emotions and feelings generated by external circumstances, then your own mind will have no freedom, no independence, and no peace, and you will be functioning in the terms of a slave. This is from Tolkutanda, Tibetan Lama. So the quality of equanimity is the gift of a peaceful heart. Just as we can feel a oneness and care with compassion and loving kindness, the quality of equanimity is to rest in the center and sense an ease and a graciousness and a timelessness that is always here, is always true. We do what we can and here we are. It is like the um, description that Thomas Merton gave of the statues, these huge marble statues in Polonnaruwa in Sri Lanka, walking across the dewy grass in front of them one morning. 
He described their extraordinary faces, great smiles, filled with every possibility, questioning nothing, rejecting nothing, a peace not of emotional re resignation, but of openness and emptiness that is seen through every question without establishing an argument or a refutation. The peace of just being with the world as it is. To discover equanimity is a radical acceptance of the heart of the way that things are. Like Zen Master Suzuki Roshi, who said, if when I die, if I suffer, that's all right, you know. That's just suffering, Buddha. No confusion in it. What an amazing acceptance. This is the way that it is. Happy Buddha, sad Buddha, sun Buddha, moon Buddha, suffering Buddha is included. And, then, and there's an incredible freedom that comes when we accept things on their own terms. Remember the story of the famous psychiatrist Milton Erickson, who hypno, hyp, hypnotherapist and, and master, who was traveling and um, visited a, a mental hospital, oh, many years ago in the 50s or 60s. And in the ward, there was, they, they were saying, all right, let's, let's see how you would work with this person. There was a man who absolutely believed he was Jesus. And uh, they'd done everything they could to try to get him out of it. The problem wasn't that he believed he was Jesus, but he believed that he was Jesus and you weren't. And you weren't, you know, that he was the only one who was Jesus. Anyway, so as the story goes, everyone had struggled with him in the hospital, the doctors. Milton Erickson went up to him and looked at him and said, I understand you're a carpenter. That was his opening gambit. The man said, I am indeed. He said, well, we need some carpentry done here, you know. And that shifted the whole game. He just took him at his word. All right, I understand you're a carpenter. Please come with me. But this radical acceptance is much bigger than that. This is from Joseph Campbell. The first step to the knowledge of the wonder and mystery of life is in the recognition of the monstrous nature of the earthly human realm, as well as its glory in that character. The realization that this is just how it is and that it cannot and will not be changed. Those who think that they know how the universe should have been better than it is, how it would have been had they created it, without pain, without sorrow, without death, without time, are unfit for illumination. Or those who think, let me first correct the world and then I'll get around to myself. So if you really want to help this world, what you will have to teach is how to live in it as it is. And that no one can do who has themselves not learned how to live in the joyful sorrow and the sorrowful joy of the knowledge of this human realm, this life that we are given. The monstrous nature as well as its glory. And it's the truth. If we look at this human realm and what it take, what it is to be born in the, in the human form, even us who, you know, are sitting in 
by world standards, the most uh, gracious and uh, prosperous and well cared for, in some ways, part of the parts of the earth. Um, but this room is still filled with people who are suffering, whether it's from disease or um, loss or divorce or depression or fear or confusion or struggle um, or broken hearts, not just our own broken hearts, but the broken hearts for the racism or the injustice or the Israelis and the Palestinians or... I mean, the Republicans and Democrats is more laughable at this point, I think. It's kind of like, it's going to get to the point where it really won't matter who's elected. Everybody, well, it's, you know, who cares? I mean, but the real sorrows we do carry. And here we are, this is the best of it. Um, so to be free requires a radical acceptance of this world actually as it is. Woody Allen said, most of the time I don't have much fun. The rest of the time I don't have any fun at all. But there's an amazing thing that happens, like that Zen master who says, is that so? That the moment that we say, this is the way that life is, and it doesn't mean we don't care for it or love or try to help in the face of injustice, but people have been trying to face help in the face of injustice a long time and it's still with us. It doesn't mean that we don't care and do what we can, but the minute that we really accept the world as it is, there is a movement of heart to come to rest and say, this is how it is. And this is what the Buddha called the luminous heart, the awakened heart, the peaceful heart that sees things as they are and can offer its blessings because it's not judging or fighting or struggling against or trying to make it only joyful and not sorrowful. It's not blind. It is seeing relationships, community, human beings the way they are. And it's the only way a marriage can work. I was at the Jung Institute the other night for the honoring of a friend and, and mentor, one of the, the, the eldest of the analysts there, Kay Bradway, who just turned 90 and had been part of the Institute for the last, gosh, 50 years or something like that, since its beginning. And her husband stood up at one point, um, Brad, and he said, you know, we've been married for 65 years. Um, and we love, you know, and I just, I love this woman so dearly. He said, we certainly have struggled a lot in the early years because we're so different. Of course, we could say that about any pair of human beings, couldn't we? We're so different. We're so opposite. We're so different. And then one day it, I realized that the two of us made a whole. And of course, now it's 60 years later. Um, the liberation comes, whether it's in a marriage or in uh, the, the sphere of whatever your work is, when we see the way things are, who that person is in their own right, and bow to them and say, yes, this is so. And stop trying to make them different.
the absence of equanimity, you could say, is grasping or judgment, trying to make things a certain way, holding on the small sense of self, the struggle that we have. It's important to understand that equanimity does not mean indifference. Indifference is the near enemy that's a kind of fear of life. I'll I'll, I'll remove myself. I don't care about life. The true nature of equanimity is an openness, an openness of heart in the midst of joy and sorrow to say yes to it all. A story for you. An older couple went to visit friends in another part of the country and were taken to a nearby racetrack, fascinated by the horses and so forth. Um, The two of them kept betting all evening till they had no more than two dollars left. The following day, the the man prevailed on his wife uh, to go to the course by himself. There was a horse, and and he took the two dollars that they had left with him. There was a horse with 50 to 1 odds on it in the first race. He bet on the horse and it won. He put on all the money he won on another long shot in the next race and won again. And he kept doing this until his entire earnings came to $57,000. Then, at the last race of the day, he had this idea. There was one horse. He liked the name. He put it all down. The race ended. And, of course, you know what happened. $57,000 all gone. That's the end. (laughs) So the man walked back home with nothing in his pocket. His wife called out to him from the porch, How did it go, dear? And the husband shrugged his shoulders and said, I lost the $2. (laughs) It's really how it is, isn't it? Oh, God, I had all that money in the stock market. It was all imaginary anyway. You know, it was. It's not indifference. It is that place that can look at the world from the heart of openness and peace and say, this is the way that it is. And you know, when we look back at our life, at the things we make fusses over and that matter to us, 10 or 20 or 30 years later, very few of them matter at all. Maybe one or two you know, that you regret or you wish you'd done differently, that really, and those usually have to do with whether you love somebody or let them know it or not in some deep way. Not what happens, you don't have much control of that. But really, we make such a fuss over stuff, and then where is it? It's gone. So equanimity is what T.S. Eliot called the still point of the turning world. At the still point of the turning world, neither from nor towards. At that still point, there the dance is, where past and future are gathered, neither movement from nor towards, neither ascent nor decline. Except for the point, the still point, there would be no dance, and there is only the dance. The inner freedom from practical desire, the release from action and suffering, Released from the inner and outer compulsion, surrounded by a grace of sense, a white light still and moving. This still point that frees us from time.
For many people who come to spiritual practice, we touch or experience this really deep human longing to be connected, to to be held, to, to love, to be whole in some way, some kind of longing, you know. And it's so strong, like that saying, it's better to be wanted by the police than not wanted at all, <laughs> right? As compassion grows, we weep tears for the sorrows of so many follies of humankind, for the Bosnians and the Croats and the Serbs and the Kosovars and the Albanians and the Turks and the Israelis and the Palestinians and the Americans, yes, ourselves as well. And sometimes it's a huge suffering that comes and breaks our heart, you know, it's your kids in a drug treatment program, and you finally say, what can I do? I love them, but I can't live their life for them. You know, or it's this tremendous surrender that comes because you've gone through your chemotherapy, and they say, well, well, maybe it worked, and maybe it didn't. We don't know. We have to wait and do the tests in six months or a year and see whether it metastasizes or whether it comes back or not. And that's an amazing period because you're there and you're living your life and you realize, I don't know how long I have to live. Which, of course, is the amazing period that we're all living in, (laughs) only we don't really remember it. So sometimes there's this huge suffering that breaks our heart and then we realize all that we have is today, is this moment, is now. Still, we kind of wonder, how can we trust in all this? How to hold it all with compassion? You know the story of the old man, the grandfather, who always wanted to fly but never really had any purpose and ended up never taking a plane flight. And finally the grandchildren said, listen, for your 85th birthday, we're going to get you, um, we got a little plane, we're going to pilot, who's going to take you up and fly you all around the valley where he lives so you can fly in an airplane and see it all. He was kind of nervous about it, not having flown before. A little bit frightened about it, but he went in the plane. Little planes can be frightening anyway. Um, The Dalai Lama gets really nervous when he flies. I was talked to a friend who flew from Dharamsala back to Delhi, and it was a small plane, and it bounces a lot when you go along the edge of the Himalayas because there's a lot of updrafts there. And he said the poor Dalai Lama was in the back seat, kind of doing his beads, opening Pami Hong, you know. He said, he said, I don't like to fly. It's, yeah. We Tibetans have other ways, right? So the grandfather went up in the plane anyway and uh, looked at everything, the valleys and the farms and came back down. And so they said, how was it? They said, well, it was really, it was a marvelous thing. I'm glad you, you know, did that to me. He said, were you scared? He said, yeah, I was still a little nervous about it. In fact, I never really let my weight down fully. <laughs> And that's what we do. That's us. We don't realize that where we're going is here. There is no other place but the eternal present, this moment. And what we seek and what we long for is here. 
Kabir says, are you looking for me? I am in the next seat. My shoulder is against yours. And what we look for, there's this great mystery. You know, I tell that story of my wife seeing the death of her brother when we were on the mountaintop in India. Another story, Walter Pankey, who was a colleague and close friend of one of my um, dearest friends, uh, Stan Groff. Walter Pankey and Stan were involved in the early research into psychedelic drugs. And Walter Pankey died in a diving accident. Um, his body was never found, actually. And he had, his children were raised, but he was married. And his wife grieved a lot, and, you know, especially when you don't find that person. And then some weeks after he drowned, he came to her in a vision or a dream. And he said, I've died and it's fine. I'm okay. And he said, but there's some important things that you need to do. So go back to my office. She hardly spent any time in his office. And look on this shelf. And there's a book there, this particular book. And in it are the last pieces of this work that needs to be completed. You can look it up and finish it. And also, in this other place, are some things that I needed to tell you about our finances and finish these things. She had this dream. She got up the next day, got in her car, drove to the lab and the place where he'd done his work, looked on the shelves, found those two books exactly where Walter told him, told her they were, and there was all the information that he had told her about. <coughs> and you hear the stories like this all the time. What do you think is happening here? You know, we think we're these little isolated monads somehow. And when we remember something magical and greater happens, a kind of trust that um, we're part of something so big. Wendell Berry puts it this way, so friends, every day do something that won't compute. You know? Love every person you meet. Love the world. Work for nothing. Take what you have and give some of it to the poor. Love someone who doesn't deserve it. <laughs> Ask questions that have no answers. Invest in the millennium. Plant sequoias. Say that your main crop is the forest that you will not live to harvest. Put your faith in the two inches of soil that will build under these sequoia trees every thousand years. A story for you. This is an Aboriginal tale, and it's told by Marion Woodman um, about how the Aborigines live in what would be called a low-tech, high-soul society. <laughs> and it's a true story, although she says she's not sure if she has the details right. But some years ago, an Australian documentary team challenged the... Uh, Aborigines to race against a top unit of the Australian army to see who could reach this remote spot in Queensland, which is remote anyway, first. And so they both accepted the challenge. Both teams arrived at the starting point. The army was laden down with heavy trucks full of cartons of food, compasses, instruments necessary to cut through the woods, walkie-talkies, all the kinds of high-tech devices of an army. I guess this was in the 1960s. The Aborigines arrived laughing and dancing, each wearing one piece of clothing and carrying one long spear. 
Intrigued by the army's gear, they also teased them about their maps. Not that way, they said. Sacred forest, can't go through there. (laughs) Sacred forest, indeed, the army officers laughed. So they set out. The army, having figured out the shortest, swiftest way, launched out toward the sacred forest. The natives laughed and danced behind them. Sure enough, the army trucks drove into sacred mud, sacred quicksand, (laughs) and sacred difficulties and had to be laboriously towed out as the little bodies of the Aborigines danced and laughed, making no effort to get on with their own journey. (laughs) Then they pointed the army drivers in the right direction and headed off in an opposite route. Television cameras accompanied both. Two camps were pitched each night. The soldiers, exhausted from their journey, got out their cartons and tin cans and listlessly ate and went to sleep. The natives waited till sunset, danced their way out to sea on a fallen log, extended their exquisite bodies black against the orange sky, and creating a perfect line, raised their spears, caught their fish, took them to the shore to cook and eat, danced and then fell asleep. Perhaps they arrived in Queensland, perhaps not, no matter, low-tech, high soul. What do you think we're doing here? I mean, what is our purpose if not to love? If not to see the beauty of this human life with its sorrows, with its unbearable suffering, with our hearts, the tenderness of the heart to say, yes, I can rest in this heart of a Buddha that I have been given, that we each have been given. I mean, I remember speaking of those times in the 60s, being in uh, Boston one day, in a beautiful spring day, and I had um, taken some magic mushrooms in the apartment of a friend, and then walked out to Boston Garden where they have the swan boats and things like that. And the city's kind of surrounding, it's like Central Park or something, there's all the city around in this really beautiful garden in the middle. And I lay down there, and I was in the grass, and the grass was like lying on an ocean of grass, and it was all swaying, and it was beautiful, and the sounds of the city were around, and I was in a rather ecstatic place. And I just looked up at the sky, and then I saw there was this church tower nearby, this beautiful big church tower. And at the top of this high church tower was Angel Gabriel with this big horn. And Angel Gabriel was actually on the four corners. There were Angel Gabriel in each of the four corners of this high church tower. And I looked up at Angel Gabriel, and then all of a sudden I could hear him play. And the music was the music of the city. It was the honking of the traffic and the taxi horns and the, you know, the sounds of the children. And that was Angel Gabriel's music, and I was just in bliss, listening to it all. True confessions. <laughs> to awaken is to bring our heart to each moment as it is. The point of Zen, as someone said, is not to catch the bus to enlightenment, but to realize you're already on the bus. We are where we're going. There isn't any other place to be. Bertolt Brecht. Recently, my fingers have developed a prejudice against comparisons. They follow this pattern. A squirrel is smaller than a tree. 
A bird is more musical than a tree. The moon is cooler than the wind. Each one of us is the strongest one in their own skin. Characteristics should take off their hats to one another instead of judging or spitting in each other's faces. Wherever we are is the pure land, it says in the Mahayana Buddhist text. If you want to find the holy land, the sacred grove, the Buddha's uh, grove of enlightenment, so the, the place, the, the, the sacred garden where the teachings of Allah are alive all the time, there's only one place it could be, the reality of the present, the timeless moment within which all things appear and disappear. The quality of equanimity, then, is a place that we can trust. We can trust our children to grow and develop and suffer and learn, and ourselves to grow and develop and suffer and learn and explore and succeed and fail. It's what life is. And that the human realm is as it is. And we can trust that there is a space of understanding and peace that's an enormous gift to the world. One peaceful heart in chaos can make such a huge difference. The practice of equanimity, although we can cultivate boundless compassion and work to serve to alleviate suffering and injustice, still it's in the nature of the world that there's so many things we will not be able to affect. You know, it's like St. Francis' prayer that's used so much in 12-step work, grant me the courage to change the things I can and the patience to accept the things I cannot and the wisdom to know the difference. When we look with the eyes of wisdom or the eyes of the Buddha, we are invited in equanimity practice to reflect on the benefit of a peaceful heart. Let's just do five minutes of equanimity practice or ten. Sit up for a moment, if you would, some easy way. And I'll give you some of the traditional phrases. The goal isn't to have anything happen, but to bow to what is so and to rest in peace in the midst of it. So closing your eyes gently, first one reflects on the benefit of a peaceful heart. How many situations on this earth would be blessed by human beings with a peaceful heart? How many situations in our lives, think of them, would be blessed by our resting in a peaceful heart? Let yourself feel this seat you've taken on the earth and how as you sit, the breath breathes itself sounds, a 
appear and disappear. The earth turns, the seasons move. And when spring comes, the grass grows all by itself. And some of the simple phrases, may I be at peace, may I find balance, may I be undisturbed, may the heart be undisturbed at all the changing events of this world. All created things arise and pass away. Everything. May I rest in peace with the arising and passing of all of life. And then there's a very important recitation that's done traditionally. It goes like this. All beings receive their own karma. Their happiness and suffering depends on their actions and not my wishes for them. And as you recite this inner phrase, like the one, may I be at peace, may I be undisturbed, Their happiness and suffering depends on their actions and not my wishes for them. One at a time, you can picture loved ones, friends, neutral people. Their happiness and suffering depends on their actions and not my wishes for them. And as you do, as you picture each, you may feel how important or critical it is to let go of your own agenda, control, judgment. We have so many agendas for everybody. All beings receive their own karma. Their happiness and suffering depends on their actions and not my wishes for them. Though I can love them, 
and offer compassion. I cannot live their lives. May I truly rest in peace. May my heart have both love and equanimity. May all beings find peace. So this too is, a, is an expression of our awakened heart, our true nature. And it is also a practice that can be cultivated, that can be remembered or evoked. May I be at peace or may, I be un, may, may my heart be undisturbed at the changing events of the world. Or picturing beings one at a time. Though I can love them, I cannot live for them. Their happiness and suffering depends on their actions and not my wishes for them. It's a balance for the cultivation of compassion and loving kindness. And it's true. So just a couple of announcements, less than a minute. Then we'll do a very simple chant and go out into the autumn evening. Um, The next two weeks, I will be away. Next week, Deborah Chamberlain Taylor, who's a very wonderful teacher from Spirit Rock, will be teaching. And the following week, another very good friend and quite marvelous teacher, Nina Wise, who's also a performance artist, but a kind of remarkable Dharma teacher, will do Monday night. And then I'll be back and finish the last two of the Brahma Viharas um, in the middle of December. And then I think Monday night is also either December 25th or 26th, so we'll probably have some kind of a Monday night Christmas celebration as well. Chris Budimus. (laughs) if you wish to work with this practice of peace for this week find the situations where you don't feel at peace see if you can just take a moment to rest to breathe 
to see the changing of seasons, to let go of the grasping of how it should be and rest back in that ocean of peace that's there in the heart. See what happens. Thank you also for your support, for the money you give, for your care, volunteers, the kind of uh, many, many forms of support to make this Spirit Rock available to all, all of us. Much gratitude and for the donations that you offer as you come and go. So the chant tonight is uh, the chant Namo, which is um, like the greeting in India of Namaste, I honor the divine within you, is uh, kind of to bow to what is. Um, Namo is the first word in the Buddhist text, and it means I honor or I bow to. Um, when you meet someone in India and say Namaste, I like to translate that as really meaning, I see you. I really see you. I see who you are underneath all those um, appearances. You know, the divine in drag, as Ramdas would say. Right? <laughs> Even in that form, look at that. Quite phenomenal. So I'd like us to chant Namo nine times. And, to bow to the world, to its joys and its sorrows, um, and taking our seat in the midst of it. <sighs> Namo. once signed his name to a poem and added, born 28 November 1757 in London and has died several times since. <laughs> we all do. May this week of arising and passing, of praise and blame, gain and loss, may it be peaceful for you. May you find that place of the wise heart of a Buddha in the midst of it all. Thank you. Good night.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.